You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 118 of Tax Talks and welcome to a new year of tax news. I hope you all had a good break and feel invigorated with ideas and purpose. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Klaas for sponsoring this episode. We all know that you need strong foundations to build a thriving business, just as you need proper foundations to build a house. But for a business, what does this actually mean? Or to be more precise, what does this mean for your accounting or tax practice? What exactly needs to happen to have strong foundations? John Peterson of Best Practice is a business advisor to accounting and tax practices. And he kindly offered to tell you more. I started by asking John, whether the foundation is the most important thing to get right. Here's John. It's not necessarily more important than everything else, but the foundation is something that if we do not set out to get the business foundation right, then what happens is... Everything adds wobbles. Well, we will only ever be self-employed. Now, if you look at our model and the framework that we teach from a business advisory point of view, raising awareness for any business owner, not just the accounting profession, but for their clients is just as important, is to raise awareness and understand that we are self-employed by design or by default. Self-employed means we work for the business. The business does not work for us. So we are always stuck on a cheese wheel. We are the reason the business generates income, but we are also so buried in making that income that we are the employee or the chief most valuable employee of the business. Getting our foundation right is never going to necessarily suggest that we don't want or don't intend to stay in an active role. A lot of accountants love what they do. That's why they chose it. But over the years, they become quite wary and tired and worn out because they don't understand if they had a better strategy, they would evolve that business model and um, have much more work-life balance and then enjoy it even more. So getting the foundation right is actually about understanding what are the fundamental things we must intend to get in place so that as the business matures, it matures in terms of producing a crop. What is the crop? It's being time rich as the principle of that business, not just income rich. It's actually both. So if we want to have a really great crop in running a professional services business, we actually have to have the intention. So if on a naive level, we don't understand what that is, and if we haven't been taught what that is, and we don't have a game plan to achieve that, how can we possibly do it? It's just not going to happen. And if it does, it's quite an accidental thing. And if it's accidental, then we don't know how to sustain it. So we could almost, like a good or bad year, we could have a good trading period and then we could have a bad couple of years and we never really knew how or why either of those things happened. That's not a very intelligent way to go about it. So getting our foundation right is really a critical concept to understand on a philosophical level because if we can understand the intention we can then also start to appreciate 
how to realise that objective. It's not that difficult. But if we want to have growth, work-life balance, prosperity, and ultimately even achieve our own succession plan in the accounting profession, you must learn these things. I talk about a three-step mindset process, which leads to a three-step outcome process. And this is something we rinse and repeat. We do it again and again and again, so that we elevate slowly but surely in a really reliable way through the journey of building a great foundation. So at first we talk about clarity, focus, implementation. Now what I mean by that is this. If we're not taking action, if we're not innovating, if we're not building the business the way we want, that's because we don't actually know what to implement. We know there's lots of things we could implement, but we're not certain on what things in in what order. So we must get absolute clarity. Number one, what do we really want? What do we want the business to look like? What should the structure look like that's going to deliver that time-rich, cash-rich, healthy, foundation-driven model? So then we've got to understand what that looks like. We've got to then learn about what focusing will do for us because, you see, you cannot possibly respond to every client inquiry every single day, deliver all the work, and innovate at the same time. That's not going to be possible. You're going to have to work smarter rather than harder. So focusing on certain things for a small amount of time each week will actually create evolution in our business model. But if we ignore those things for a notional amount of time, we'll never evolve the business strategy. So then if we do that, we've got clarity, we've got focus, now we've got to implement. So there's a few little things we must take action on. If we start to do that, then we're starting to think differently and we're demonstrating that in our actions and our behaviour. So, for example, if 80% of what I do can be done by somebody else 100% of the time, that might be an intention and an objective. And initially, if we're time poor and we're stuck in the business working all the time, producing our income, well, it's a pipe dream. It's not in place yet. But what if we set that about as an intention and an objective. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to slowly migrate the income distribution to work done by people other than ourselves. Now, if that's going to take time, big deal. It's going to take time anyway. But if we can slowly hand off the less difficult things, task-based, and really systemise the fundamental templates and products and services that the clients want, the accounting firm to deliver, for example, then ultimately we are progressively moving towards that objective of one day having 80% of the work done by the team 100% of the time rather than ourselves. Another way to think about this is to say, well, maybe I'm a perfectionist and my employees don't necessarily look like they're ever going to arrive at what I would call my quality standard. Well, maybe I'm going to have to let go of my quality standard and come up with a term like an 8 out of 10. What if they can achieve an 8 out of 10 100% of the time? Well, now we might not be over-delivering for our client. Sometimes we over-service the client, particularly if we're the principal of the firm because we care so much. And there are so many of your listeners that if they are partner level or a sole practitioner, they would know straight away in, in listening to this that they are often not recovering all of their time and delivering a lot of value, but they don't feel appreciated by the customer because the customer doesn't see any of that. That's behind... Blind. Yeah. 
Yeah, the client doesn't see it, right? The client does not see that at all. It's because it's behind the um, the office hours, it's inside the practice itself, not in front of the client's eyes. So understanding those principles is very important. Now, the next thing is also to understand that there are various stages to maturing the business. We can't possibly hand over all of the work to a team that can't deliver that, nor should we even set out to do something that we don't believe is possible, yeah? Very important to understand that. The exciting thing about the foundation stage is whilst it's the most arduous chapter in the five stages to mastering a business, it's also the one that delivers the most reward because if the holy grail is really having an income from a business that you own whereby you can come and go as much as you like and it won't affect your base income because it delivers that income through Uh, the efforts of other people, such as employees, well, that's a pretty good business to own. So if it does take you two, three or five years to get the foundation right, does that really matter when the prize at the end of that stage is so wonderful? What we've documented as a methodology, which is something that is now a leading business advisory methodology as well, that we teach accountants and advisors for them to then go and teach it to their clients, and really make them more potent as business advisors. The foundation stage is really a combination of things. It's not just a, a label, right? It's really a whole bunch of important elements that anyone can learn, but initially it just seems a bit challenging, a bit daunting, but because we've never been taught these things. You don't get taught when you're doing your CPA or your CA or Uh, Your master's in taxation even, you don't actually get taught how to run a business. They're very different things. So we've got to really start out looking at the self-belief and the mindset of the practitioner. What happens if their mindset and their self-belief is this is as good as it's ever going to get? If they don't believe they can make it any better, are they going to strive to do so? Probably not. What if they can't see the model and how they could believe that model? then they're also not necessarily going to pursue that. And so then their planning and their time management becomes so important because if ultimately we are going to get the work done differently through people that we employ internally or offshore, doesn't matter, then we have to think differently to achieve that outcome. So we've got to make plans and start looking at how we can get that done. Our time management becomes very important because instead of trading time for money, we want to trade value for money. We want to deliver products and services that the clients perceive as valuable and are grateful for, but we want to do that through other people's work rather than just our own. So planning to do that and valuing our own time is very important. Otherwise, we're going to be stuck on a a cheese wheel mentality. Then, of course, what I find is that if there's no motivation like a European holiday or an investment property or a houseboat or or something that is really of personal significance to the goal setter. Without a goal, what are we aiming for in the core business? There's got to be a reward that's not just a bit of work-life balance. You see, we're too pain tolerant and we're too self-sacrificing. That's the human condition. That's human nature. We've got to really set out to achieve something that's in it for us. And that's going to give us some more motivation and more drive to actually disrupt our own current 
daily habits and practices and, and systems and processes because they are clearly in need of disruption if we're the ones that are time poor and not getting the foundation right. And then, of course, some fundamental things like a few basic leadership skills and knowing how to ask better questions. These things become very important because if we're not asking the right questions of an employee, we're not redirecting the team members' focus, nor are we shifting any accountability and responsibility from our shoulders to theirs, right? That only comes if you work for me and I ask you very poor questions. Hey, what jobs are you working on at the moment? What are you doing today? Yeah, how's it all going? Those questions are wishy-washy. They're not bringing an accountability transfer from my shoulders to yours. But if I turn around to you and I say, now, just out of interest, of all of these jobs that we've got sitting here, what's the one job that you've got everything you need that you can complete that job today and we can invoice it at the end of the day? Show me that job. Now there's an accountability transfer. Now there's focus, right? And so we're starting to understand some of the simple practical ways we can actually be a more effective leader to master our own destiny and the destiny and evolution of our business. One of the other things that's really interesting is our cash flow because let's face it, if we could afford to pay lots of money for outstanding employees, wouldn't they therefore deliver the work? Which means we would automatically be time rich and we'd be migrating towards achieving the foundation stage or graduating from it. But if we can't afford outstanding people, then the cash flow is actually prohibiting us from progressing towards mastering the foundation stage. So what we must understand is that our own ability to manage cash flow also needs to improve. Our intention to invest in talent or people-driven systems as well as technology-driven systems is also going to be important. So we have to fund that. If we can't fund it, it's not going to happen, okay? If our cash flows are poor, it's not going to happen. Now, I've literally on my way here, I've just received a gift from one of our sole practitioners is a bit of a superstar in, in the best practice program. And you know he was a struggling 250,000 a year turnover business five years ago. He's now at a million dollars. He's got work-life balance. It's A-class client list. And he's given me a lovely bottle of Irish whiskey, which is nice. But the point is, he just pointed out, he showed me his own bookkeeping files in a meeting just now. And he's got over 55,000 a month recurring every month on direct debit. Now that's more than 50% of his turnover. So that takes an enormous amount of risk and stress and anxiety out of his day-to-day life as a practitioner. If 60% of your revenue is recurring every month, you've covered all your costs pretty much, yeah? So that's a a marvellous place to be. In addition to that, we can then, if we have stable cash flow, we're actually much more confident to start gambling or entering this... this, um, um, Bermuda Triangle called marketing. Now, most accountants and and advisors really would love to get started in marketing, but they really don't know where to start. Their cash flow or the volatility of their cash flow, in fact, is the reason why they don't make a start. They can't bear the thought of investing a few dollars in marketing to not get an instant return. But the truth is, marketing is like planting an acorn and growing an oak tree. That takes time. You don't grow an oak tree in one day with a small investment of time and water. You're going to water that thing for years, right? Well, marketing can feel like that. But guess what? If your cash flow confidence isn't there, you're not going to even embark on the journey. Once we embark on the journey, things get very exciting.
So getting the marketing right is pretty interesting. If you're spending money and you're not getting a return, then you better have a very stable cash flow in order to, in fact, persist with marketing. Otherwise, you'll quit and say it, didn't, it never worked and you might not try it again. The other thing that we've got to think about is how much business planning and management of that plan, tracking and managing that plan. I call business planning a master plan in terms of actually having a plan. It's no good to have something of a plan. We want to be pursuing a master plan. We want to be drafting and designing and redrafting a plan that is so masterful that we are passionate about it. It's like a vision. It's something that we're convinced is what we should be pursuing. That is going to give us the motivation, the drive, the determination to press on through um, ups and downs. And some of the things that you need to have to have a master plan, we talk about mission, vision and values. And if you've never been taught to use these things, you probably don't necessarily appreciate just how potent they can be and how much of a competitive advantage they can deliver for you. Your own strategic objectives, how you measure whether or not you're tracking in the right direction. You've then got to be able to embrace change. You've got to understand that managing change, managing the fear of change, uh, and even managing growth can go broke from growing just as easily as you can go broke from not managing your whip and debtors. And the structure itself, the, the skills you're going to need or competencies you're going to need, these are all elements. And then, of course, the talent that you do or don't have. If you recruit very mediocre people and you put up with employing them, guess what? You're never going to realise your goals and dreams. And so having the intestinal fortitude to be willing to coach people up or counsel them out of the business and churn because they're just not what you need. That's something that Steve Jobs was famous for and many of his critics came from him famously saying with much regularity, you are not an A-grade player, you're fired, you can't work here. And that horrified many corporate journalists and yet it was precisely the reason he built a world-class business was he would not settle for less than A-grade players. Well, why can't a small business do that? Why can't an accounting firm do that? It's kind of essential to have a really great team. And if you look at some of the businesses that have gone from very small to quite large in the accounting profession, and many of my clients I've mentored have done this, and their team is a very attractive team in terms of their, their skills, their attitude and everything else. And then, of course, managing that team, managing the performance of the team and the business and understanding what your value proposition is. If you don't have a good appreciation of the value of productising your services and segmenting those services into a particular market, it's highly unlikely that you're actually going to make much impact or grow or scale your business. Let me give you an example. Every service should be documented and micro-stepped from start to finish, all the little steps in that particular process that delivers that particular service. Then with a logo on the top of that and a price on the bottom, you've actually created a product that is literally labelled the service that it is, but it's now become a product. Every product needs to become a service and every service needs to become a product. So as you innovate, that's how you'll add strategic competitive advantage. 
understanding how to do that, well, I guess if that's a bit confusing to any of the listeners, well, they should look into that a little more because it makes a massive difference. And of course, then segmenting. So oh, let me give you an example of productization. Over 18 years or so, we've assisted accountants to buy, sell and merge or dilute equity about 130 times. So 130 mergers or acquisitions or junior partners diluting, buying into, senior partners diluting, selling down to transactions right across Australia. Now, that's a service, but we turned it into a product. We can charge a service fee and show an actual service in a step-by-step methodology to someone who wants to buy a firm or someone who wants to sell a firm, and this is how we're going to do it. And by stepping it out, it's more believable, it's on paper, and the value proposition is much higher. And that's otherwise traditionally what accountants have done is not understood that value, that they can talk about it, but the client's not valuing. Why not? Because it's not on a piece of paper, it doesn't have a logo, it doesn't look like a product. If you're giving away advice verbally, then you're basically most of the time giving it away for free and then trying to charge a fee for it afterwards, which is often challenged, right? Then, of course, there's segmenting. I don't help thousands of motor mechanics to buy and sell their businesses or merge or pharmacies or charcoal chicken shops. or I just do that for accountants. As a result, we're very good at that and, you know, growth and succession strategy. But if I tried to do that for everybody, how could you hold all the, the knowledge and expertise for that? And by the way, how would you be perceived by accountants as being a specialist in their space when that's what they want for such a, a, such a risky transaction, such as a merger or an acquisition? They want a specialist. Well, don't your clients want a specialist as well? Of course they do. Segmenting gives you an enormous ability to in, intensify your knowledge and expertise, but also to intensify the marketing and the value proposition as well. And then, of course, what we've got is testing and measuring what you do. Because when you start offering a product or service of any kind, you really are getting started. Imagine um, a martial artist and brand new rookie martial artist. Compared to the six Dan Black Belt, they're chalk and cheese. So the journey is a step-by-step process. If the six Dan Black Belt quit when they were a yellow belt, then they would never become a six Dan Black Belt. Well, testing and measuring is, in fact, pursuing product and services excellence and continuing to refine your service or your product or your value proposition, knowing that at some point it's going to be pretty good. But if we don't persist and we don't get started, it's not going to be the case. So we don't have to be great to get started, but we have to get started to become great. And then understanding that if we can attract better talent because we demonstrate a vision and some values and a better marketplace value proposition for the client, well, maybe talent will recognise our intention and be more drawn to working with us. But if we haven't got any of those elements, how do we attract talent? It's a common sense outcome that you're not going to attract good people if you don't have a good value proposition. And then obviously, retaining them and developing them and being willing to empower them to take on more and more responsibility and dilute equity through them and stuff like that. These things are also very important, okay? Then, of course, there's systemising the business and creating sustainability. So systemization is about getting more work done in less time because the nature of the work is predictable. If you vary every single type of job that you do, then your production engine builds no consistency or systemization of process. But if you refine and focus on what you do and you schedule work that is similar, so if you have a similar product to offer over and over again or service, then you can increase the throughput 
per hour of that capability. That is how you actually build efficiency. And you can also have multiple products or services and have a broad range of things, but the team has to learn these things one step at a time. Sustainability comes from an intergenerational approach. You cannot possibly have a really sustainable model unless you are attracting, retaining and developing intergenerational levels of talent into your business. Not as hard as it sounds. I know it sounds like a lot. What do you mean this intergenerational? Well, intergenerational, I'm saying that if I've got junior equity partners in my business before the age of 30, some between 30 and 40, and some between 40 and 60, I have a terrific intergenerational talent strategy because my better people then are in different generations and they can relate to different generations of the market. Not only that, but they can also then demonstrate an intergenerational strategy to future candidates when the business needs to attract more talent. There's evidence already in that business that exists that says, well, no, you can get equity in this business, even if you're 26, if you're the right person, because evidence is attractive to the, to the other prospects out there. No evidence, sole practitioner, 65 years of age, never diluted equity, now is thinking about it, and they're sitting on Myob AE or APS, and they're wondering why nobody 25 to 40 years of age has the slightest bit of interest in joining that firm and they're complaining about the lack of talent and if you've made that bed you're going to lie in it right as opposed to a sole practitioner who's 65 who's got 30 percent junior equity partner at 40 who together have attracted a 30 year old who's going to come in at five percent and there's a terrific young 24 year old in there as well well that's a much more viable long-term model to sustain okay um if you understand those things, then it's a whole new discipline is to set about going on a learning journey to actually attain the knowledge because it's only knowledge. It's not some holy grail that doesn't exist like a unicorn or a mystic goblet or something from an ancient dynasty that you're never going to find. It's actually just knowledge applied through rigour and uh, continuity over time to become a method. Okay, so we understand that. We understand the basics around getting your foundation right. Welcome back. I like John's comment that your business goals should what you really want in your life to interlink business and personal goals. In the next episode, episode 119, John Peterson will talk about the four quadrants of success or as they are more commonly known, the four quadrants of time management. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for the support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.